Welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. Do you think it's possible for people to really be happy? Like, to really feel it day to day? Like every day? Like every day. No. You don't? No. There's some signs that, that, I mean, you'll habituate to some things. Uh, Long-lasting long happiness, though, is it's not about feeling it every every day because they're going to be ebbs and flows right they're going to be ups and downs uh, but it's about having a practice of um, of returning to your happiest possible place mm-hmm. uh, by doing the work that's necessary to get there and it's work um, but you can cultivate long-term happiness long-lasting happiness as a practice do you have a time in your life where there's a before and after? Like, before I, I was um, attuned to the ha- practice of happiness and after I was attuned to the happiness of practice? Practice, Happy, of, practice happiness. of happiness? Yeah, I suppose for me, it. I mean, I, I started studying positive psychology after I got into the law of attraction stuff. I felt so happy when I first started looking into... So here's my law of attraction story. It's necessary to talk about just because people are like, well, what's that? You know, it was 2013. It was the end, the very end of 2012. And I started listening to, you know, some material by Kevin Trudeau. And I made what you might consider a wish. I I set my unbelievable goal to make $100,000 that year. And I had an inkling as to how I was going to do it. Three days had gone by from the time that I had sort of made that wish to like crazy stuff started happening in my life uh, and all these parts started moving in, coming together and like I couldn't believe it. And I, I was so beside myself. I was so... Like, you know, my first thought was like, wow, this stuff really works. It was amazing. It was, it was crazy. And then because I don't believe in magic... I also asked myself, how is this working? I mean, I, I didn't doubt, I didn't doubt the techniques, uh, but I was curious as to like what's like what was really going on. And you know, over the course of a few months, <laughs> like I, you know, I started being is the happiest I'd ever been in my life. Uh, it, it it was a really long, sustained period of waking up with so much joy and excitement that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was like winning the lottery, sort of. Uh, so maybe a good five or six months of just like bliss. So much so that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to compare to anything. But the curious, you know, the curious nature of who I am, I started asking questions just to you know, it's myself mostly, but trying to find the answers to like, what, what's really going on. 
There's a book by a guy named Sean Acor, who, what's the name of this, The, the Happiness Advantage? Mm-hmm. Who, uh, he fills in some of the puzzle, I think, whereas he says, the the basic understanding of what happens in our society is that we set these goals, especially financial goals or other kind of material goals uh, or like life goals. And we have an expectation that if we fulfill those goals, we'll be happy. He says, not only is that not true, but we actually have the formula backward. If you pursue happiness first, then, and you can, you have a happiness practice that all these other things will start to fall in line. Um, and so the data on that are pretty clear that, that that's the, the optimal way to go about it, right? You pursue happiness first, as opposed to offloading happy your happiness till someday when I get this job or mm-hmm. mate or child or whatever it is, then I'll be happy. Like that's the disaster path. Um, and so after Sean Acor's book, I start looking into like the academic study of positive psychology. And then after that, it was a wrap. It was uh, started learning just how it works how it works in the brain, what the chief interventions are, the chief practices, and integrating those things in, into my life. So when you're describing this initial sense of um, you set this intention, I guess, to make $100,000, um, and things started happening, do you think it was less about uh, magic? Um, you were talking about the law of attraction and more like what you were just talking about what Sean Acor says that once you you know you reverse it, if you pursue the happiness, then you get the happiness rather than you pursue the things to get the happiness. Was that part of the formula you think for you initially? I don't think it was part of the formula for me initially. Um, I, I I think once I started seeing major things move in my life, it started making me happy. Mm. But also there was a there was a shift in my mentality too uh, that allow for it. So one of the bigger breakthroughs had to do with this sense of responsibility. So no matter how you, you frame the law of attraction, and I like to try to frame it in more sort of scientific ways, but no matter how you how you frame it, one of the, the underpinning um, ideas is that you create your reality and that whatever the results that you're getting right now in your life those results are a product of the things that you're doing. Right? You're living in the residual sort of space of what you've done prior to this. And, you know, for some people, they interpret it as the life that you're living is your fault. And that's a fair interpretation um, to some degree. There are some things that I think are outside of... So like again the magic part um there are things that happen randomly and we can't discount randomness so if you are hit by a straight bullet for example or your you know your neighbor's house catches on fire and it destroys your house i'm unwilling to say you attracted that into your life because one that's ridiculous like I, i don't think that the dinosaurs attracted the meteor to destroy them Right. Um, I I think if an ant is in the forest and 
is infected with a fungus um, that that ant attracted that fungus. That's ridiculous. And so as animals, as humans, as beings, we are subject to randomness as well. Um, So, you know, for the people who are like, are you telling me that I, I attracted the cancer in my life? I'm not, I mean, unless you smoke, I'm not saying that. Um, But what I am saying is that lots of the results that we have that we don't like are brought about, and not all, right? That's my point. Lots of those results are a result of how we move and how we act in the world. Uh, And and the, the, the reason that that was so meaningful to me is because I had to look at the results that I was getting at the time. And I didn't like, I didn't like them all, which is probably why I was open to the idea to begin with. And it felt like a punch in the face for me to accept the responsibility. Um, it felt worse than a than I than a punch in the. It felt like walking through, like walking blindly through a, a sheet of glass and then having the glass fall down on you. Hmm. But I actually like this this idea this metaphor if you will this image of walking through glass and being cut to pieces i like that more because the glass is also a threshold so it's painful uh, i also I, I guess in my head i also watched a girl walk through uh through a glass uh, you watched someone do that i it was ninth grade this is story this it's ninth grade we were at the science fair and this girl walked she walked through the glass she's got super cut up and, you know, obviously I had to go to the hospital, all that kind of oh stuff. Goodness. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> but I like that as, as an image because you're going to deal with... It's painful to be like, oh, the results that I have in my life, I'm responsible for those. Like, it's so much easier to be like, let me blame my parents or let me blame society or the church or whatever it is. That's easier. Uh, and that's that's a relief. So I have a question. It sounds like... And I know that you've studied... Um, this whole, like, scientifically, this this uh, this uh, law, the law of attraction. Like, you've spent a lot of time, and and I know that you are in favor of science. Um, but what about these unconscious processes that we deal with? I mean, you know, somebody who has suffered trauma, or as somebody who has had, you know issues around you know attachment pre-verbally or these processes that are running in our brain that we don't even know exist what what would you do with something like that with with regard to you know changing the story yeah i mean i like the question because there is there is this specter of blame that's that's in the background uh and people don't want to feel blamed and they don't want to feel responsible and while I hear that on the one hand, just because you don't like, you know, we certainly live in a society that wants to protect our feelings and our, our emotions. But if you're messed up, if you're a farmer and you're messed up, let's say you're an alcoholic farmer and um, and you're abusive to your kids and they, they walk off the farm and because you can't get your stuff together, you don't plant in time. You don't till in time. You don't get your seeds in time. You don't get your thing going in time. And you miss a little bit of the window. And let's say your harvest is way suboptimal. You could say like, hey, look, I, I, I'm an alcoholic because of what happened. 
but that doesn't make that harvest any better. And so on the one hand, I, I could I can give you a hug. I can be sympathetic to your your pain, but that has nothing to do with the harvest. So you've read this book, I believe. Um, it's a book I've read as well by um, Vanderkolk called uh, The Body That Keeps the Score. You know, this what we know is that trauma and um, pain is stored cellularly in our bodies. Cortisol levels, um, drops in things like uh, endorphins and oxytocin and um, dopamine. Um, PTSD is this too, you know, these visions that will pop up and get triggered um, because there has been some memory that brings forth um, the event as if it were happening today. Um, those are the things that I, I'm curious about. Like, what do you do with the stored trauma? Think things that affect our nervous system. Well, what do you want to do? I mean, that's really the question. Um, I mean, that's the question that, that I would ask anyone. What do you want to do with your life, really? Um, do you want to live a good life? Or do you want to manage your pain? And those aren't the same, those aren't the same thing. Both are possible. Um, managing your pain or running or, or avoiding your pain. That's a possibility too. Lots of people do. I know people who do it and I get why they do it. Uh, I know people hold on to their anger and I get why. Uh, there's a justice sense sometimes. Uh, there's a sense of righteousness. There's a sense of I shouldn't have to do it because I, 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 I'm not the, the first domino they got knocked down, maybe happened when I was too young and I'm not the person responsible. I get it. But Feeling that sense of righteousness or that righteous indignation, feeling that that the blame of somebody else is maybe justifiable, feeling that, you know, I don't want to have to be the person who corrects this um, because let's say it's the case of PS PTSD or something like that and, and the government might be on the hook because of war. Maybe you don't want to be the person who, who does it. But the only person that's going to live your life is you. And if you want it to be better, you got to take it into your own hands. But what if none of that's true? Maybe it's not a justice issue or a righteous indignation or I don't want to be responsible. What if it's somebody that's saying, I would happily do that, but it's there's such a hold. You know, I think about sometimes depression. Um, chemically, you know, I guess what the the it, it's considered morbid depression if it lasts longer than six months because what has happened then is your brain has chemically rearranged enough that it's you can't think your way out of it <clears throat> so it is you know a physical manifestation people report pain like joint pain sure. um, trouble breathing uh, heart palpitations um, and then we know some of these typical signs can't get out of bed can't shower uh, foggy thoughts is another um, symptom of depression, not being able to manage time. Um, and it's not necessarily a thinking um, process at this point now. It's a chemical process. It's a nervous system reaction. It's, you know, there's a lot of physical manifestations. People can get really sick. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to, because, you know, given the scenario that you just painted, it sounded to me that there's either this, you can either manage and make decisions to do something different, even if you're experiencing some of these real um, chemical shifts or or physical shifts, nervous system um, problems. 
Um, and you can either manage to, to think of that as it's not somebody else's fault, it's my fault, I can change it. Um, or you are thinking of this isn't, you know, it's not fair, it's my parents' fault, it's, you know, the government's fault. And, you know, I think that that's a black or white, to me, it sounds like a black and white thinking that there's maybe something in the middle of that, that somebody's not really looking to blame somebody, but they're really suffering, like they can't, they can't manage it. Yeah, there is a, a black, even though we were taking the blame stuff, I would, so I was thinking of scenarios that were different than the one that you had in mind, but it still, I think for me, boils down to something relatively black and white is that there is no cavalry that's coming, right? If you want a better life, then the person who has to be in charge of you creating a better life is you. And if you're waiting for someone to do something better for you, it's going to be a long wait because they're trying to make their lives better. Like they're not that worried about you. Um, so yeah, it's upon us. It's incumbent upon us, uh, whether we want it to be or not. And, you know, sometimes there's a real information gap. Like what if you don't know that a new life is possible? Um, what if you don't, what if you don't know that you can actually do things to change your life? So, I mean, you know, Martin Seligman and I forget the other, uh, psychologists, they did this study in the 1970s that had to do with, you know, could dogs learn to um, change their in environment if they're being uh, abused, essentially. And what came out of that was this idea of learned helplessness. Like, you can learn, um, you can learn to be helpless. And whether you're aware of that process or not, let's say it starts when you're younger, but if, if you have, if you're in a situation of learned helplessness, then you may not, you simply may not know, like these dogs, that you can actually change your situation. And, you know, that's that's one of those too bad. Like, this, that's, that's us. It sucks if you don't even have the wherewithal to know that that you can actually make things better. And there are loads of people like that. In fact, that was one of them, right? I stumbled into it. I stumbled into um, just random chance of this idea of, of self-development and self-betterment. But, you know, if you don't know and you don't know, you don't know. One, that's too bad. And two, still, nobody else is going to help you. Mm -hmm. I hear that. I, you know, I think it's an interesting conversation to have because I think as, as a therapist, you know, I'm often taken with people's stories, you know, <laughs> I think that's my job, right? And I see a lot of, of shifts in people, but I also see these patterns that exist where, you know, people are trying very desperately to change and rearrange their thinking so that they can overcome them. These patterns come back all the time. And I think, you know, I say this often to my clients because of core wounding. It's it's something they've adjusted to very, very young in life for protection. And it comes out as a pattern in adults before they even know that it's actually upon them. So a lot of like discouragement with clients when they'll, you know, will be having a session. They're saying, I'm saying the same thing I've said before and before and before. And, you know, I often will... Um, you know, encourage them with, yeah, patterns take time to break. I mean, this is part of therapy is that we go over these over and over and over again. I don't get tired of that because it, it is this kind of um, remembering over and over and over again what the thing to do, could how you could do something differently. Um, and unless you 
you know, unless we're processing that often enough, even in these situations where somebody might say, well, that, you know, I know all of the things um, rationally, but it just popped up out of nowhere. And I will often remind them, well, that's your nervous system, right? It's a, you know, amygdala is like the fight, flight, or freeze. You feel threatened. And so everything internally in terms of your, you know, your chemical process and your heart rate, all of that start to be activated. And the thought, even if it's rational, that says I'm safe or I'm not going to do this or, you know, I could do something else, you're, you are working with this bodily um, reaction. And so it's difficult and people get confused about that because they're saying, but if I can think my way out of this, why can't I just think my, my way out of this? And I remind them, well, your body's activated. This isn't just a mind thing. Right. No, the one thing that I would say is that we'll talk about what it means to be aware of that, that the body's activated, but the thought process could say something, okay, my nervous system has kicked in. Is it really true that I'm in danger? Like, do I really need to react to the way that my body is responding? Maybe I'll take slow, deep breaths. Maybe I'll calm down. Maybe I'll count to 10 and remember that I don't have to just move according to what my body is saying. Um, So in terms of the behavioral stuff, like what you say, you know, you're the only one in charge of your life. I think that's really significant in those moments. That's the cognitive shift, right? And it is kind of overriding the nervous system. I wouldn't say overriding because the nervous system is going to do what the nervous system does, but to cooperate with the, the situation in truth rather than just to react what I think our body is telling us to do. Yeah, the, so, I mean, that's a real thing. Uh, is to So one, I agree that you can't just think yourself to a new state, right? Like purely through thinking. Um, but a lot of that also still goes back to this other, you know, question that I always have for people. Um, and that I was saying is that, you know, it really comes down to what you want. And, you know, when that is really clear, so sometimes the thing that you want is a, 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 a lack of, you know, like you want relief, right? So if what you want is relief from pain, um, then then the ways to do that are are pretty clear right you know psychology coming out of the medical model in fact our entire medical model is really good and really adept at relieving pain and relieving a, a certain level of suffering and you know on that in that regard the law of attraction has nothing to say positive psychology has nothing to say positive psychology has way less to say than clinical psychology um, because it's not geared toward the relief of pain. Uh, but if the thing that you want is positive, and this is a really, this is a different orientation uh, than wanting, I want relief, right? Um, if you want something, some positive thing, um, something that is well-defined, then that's where this other stuff comes in. And how to get there is in fact, a different process than the process of getting relief. Can you give me an example of something that might be well-defined that isn't about getting relief? Yeah, if you want to find the right partner, or if you want the, a better job, or if you want to make $100,000 in a year. That's interesting because, you know, we'll take the first one. If you want to find the right partner, you know, I think a lot of times if I think about people that want the right partner, they are trying to relieve loneliness, right? <laughs> right. 
but and partnering is about you know togetherness and not feeling alone i mean we are designed to connect that's our brains are made for connection isn't that part of it no so there are a couple ways that this happens right um so there are people who who aren't in pain around that and they want to partner for positive reasons like so say you are let's let's bring the age into it because the age is really important um say your age is important enough say you're 22 and you've always wanted to start a family and your prospects are good your relationship with wanting a partner is different than someone who is 39 and wants a partner and have always wanted a partner and thought that they'd have it by now so one is about getting something positive right i i want to build this thing i want to have this family Right? And, and there isn't a sense of relief that, that, that they're seeking at 22, right? Because it could be 23 or it could be 24. They got time. But at 39, you're feeling something different. And you're telling yourself a different story. And the way that you're thinking about yourself has a different meaning. Right? And I don't, you know, everyone has a different narratives, but I've come across some of these narratives. Um, some people are doubt that it'll ever happen to me. Or what does this say about me that no one wants me? Or whatever it is. And so it's true that they want partnership as well. But they also want relief in a way that is not tied to... Um, it's not tied to like the 22-year-old in the same way. And what I'm saying is that it's possible, uh, especially if you really want to successfully... You know, say you're older, say you're 39. And you want... A partner that is going to be a good fit for you spiritually and in the world. It's possible to have the same mentality as a 22-year-old where you're not looking for relief from from the, the story that you've told yourself. You just want to build something in the world with someone. That's possible. Um, the law of attraction can help you get that. It does feel... Um, you know, when you say something like the law of attraction, because there, there is this kind of this, this way of looking at that out there that, you know, it, it feels like the woo woo community, right. you know, like if I think about finding a hundred dollars in the park enough and I walk by this path every day that eventually a box with a hundred dollars will show up. That's a very simplistic example. Yeah. But that, that, that thing exists. But, um, yeah, so when I hear this, I hear, you know, some conflict around it. Um, could you briefly explain what you were describing when you said you've kind of scientifically pulled this apart? Yeah, so to your point, I mean, there, there is, there, there's a magical thinking aspect to how people see it. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. It, it got popular, again, with this book, The Secret, that talks about brain waves. And, you know, if you send out these waves into the universe you'll attract things that are alike and i think that's the wrong way to think about it the right way to think about it is this is that because we live in in a particular kind of earth around the sun driven system uh that we can exploit our environment to our advantage that's like a core foundation for what's necessary for this to work the thing is for us to kind of for, for us to change our relationship with the environment, we have to change our beliefs. And it turns out that changing your beliefs is really, really, really hard. 
mm. like really hard. AA hit onto something that they, you know, AA has been able to Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Has been able to walk people through a process that helps them to change their beliefs. But changing your beliefs is really hard. So, at the core, what the law of attraction is helping people to do, or it, it the, sort of systematically, is to examine the beliefs that they have. They're about their own limitations. I can't do this because I'm a woman. I can't do this because I'm black. Who would ever listen to me? Nobody would ever listen to me. Um, I had one of these beliefs myself. It was, and I remember the day that it changed, but I used to think, if only I could just get paid to talk, like, that would be amazing. Because I, I obviously I love to talk. Uh, but wouldn't it be amazing if I could just get paid to do that? And... But, like, that's ridiculous because nobody's going to pay me to talk, right? Or is that right? But that was a belief that I had. And in that moment, I was like, well, does anyone get paid to talk? And I started thinking of Howard Stern was the first person that came to my head. I was like, well, he gets paid to talk. And I was like, oh, yeah, there, there are people who get paid to talk. And why not me? So being aware of those types of self-limiting beliefs first you have to be aware of them and you know just how our narrative brain works we're telling ourselves these types of things all the time doesn't mean that we're aware of our self-limiting beliefs but then after we even have a level of awareness like oh right that's not true or maybe that's true i don't know but it's a belief well then you have to be able to challenge that belief and then after that, you have to be able to build a new belief. And all of those things are really hard, especially if you're trying to do it on your own. And so what exists is a system of you tethering your desires, right? And desire plays an important part of what we need to have a, a, a happy life. Um, again, you know, the... the the psychology stuff on this, especially coming out of psychology, desire is this critical part of what we need to take steps forward. We have to want something. But, you know, once you have defined what it is that you want, which is different than relief, right? So um, relief won't take you in this direction. But if you want something that's positive out there in the world, something that is tangible or something that's well-defined, then taking steps toward that, especially if you don't have it now, will be scary. It's scary to open a business. It's scary to talk to the girl that you think is too pretty for you. It's scary to talk to the guy that you think is too handsome. It's scary to ask your boss for like all these things that, you know, it's scary to go out on stage. All these things are scary to us, especially if we haven't done them or we've only done them a few times. So what the law of attraction is about is saying, hey, you really want this thing. And you know what? You can have it. Other people have had it. You're not different from them. It's taking your beliefs and using, it's taking your desires and using them as a beacon and then helping you to form the beliefs that are necessary so that you can actually start taking steps in that direction and not chickening out. And it's going to be hard, but we can do it. I have this theory. I don't know if I call it a theory, but the kind of the way that I have um, adapted a process around when things go wrong where I used to think when things go wrong 
my process might have looked like something like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. What am I going to do? What if, you know, I don't get that form in on time and then that leads to another thing and then I, you know, I have to owe more money or whatever it is. I'm just making something up. And I would go down this list of all these things that could possibly go wrong and I would wring my hands for days or weeks or months um, and consider it to be the problem. Um, And I think a few years back, I don't know how long it's been, um, I think I started to consider things like resilience and um, what that looks like in life to be resilient ways that I think I hadn't really understood resilience of of how to um, tackle problems or to understand missed opportunities as opportunities, um, that I started to change my mentality around when things go wrong. And I rarely, there are still some things that definitely have a hold on me, but I rarely will think of problems as problems, but more as an opportunity. I will consider it as something that I just need to figure out. There's a solution. I just need to get to the solution. Um, And I talk about this with my kids a lot. I think, you know, the older two, I probably wasn't on this wavelength when they were small, so they don't quite get this. And plus, you know, young people oftentimes don't get this anyway. (laughs) But um, when I think about things that happen in my life that um, are unfortunate, I mostly will go towards, well, what am I going to do to fix it? Or how do I integrate it? Or how do I deal with this in a way that um, will give me a better opportunity for now or in the future? Is that similar to what you're talking about? Would that be? I mean, I, I think that's a good cognitive process. It's not the same as what I'm talking about. Because, you know, when you're talking about fixing it, you're talking about uh, basically a relief strategy. Hmm. Um, And I I think that we should, like, you don't need, the law of attraction is not going to be helpful there. Well, I wasn't thinking so much, and you're right, that would be a relief strategy. But I was thinking about the pattern of thought. Instead of the woe is me, it's uh, what can I do to bring goodness? Or what can I do to shift this so that it's not the terrible thing I thing I think it is yeah I, I hear you um, I guess the, the way that I think about that is so sometimes we, we don't know these strategies but if if you are going to fix something in your life uh, if you're in a woe is me state uh, the idea of fixing it I don't think is a scary one you, you may not know it and you may be ruminating but the idea of fixing a problem it, it it doesn't require the same emotional overcoming as walking out onto a stage does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly helpful to have all types of cognitive tools that allow you to say, okay, here here's, if I'm ruminating or if I don't have this problem, what's the, so that's strategic thinking, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you have strategic thinking as a skill set, you are like you're in the pocket with that Mm -hmm. um but the other stuff the other so the other stuff first the first thing you have to do is like allow yourself to want Hmm. um and that that's that's bigger than it seems because a lot of the times the things that we want 
we'll tell ourselves a story because we, we don't believe we can have it of why we don't want it. Uh, and allowing yourself to want, there's a coach that I really like. He says, what would you allow yourself to want if you didn't have to deal with the disappointment of not having it? Um, and, you know, I, I had to listen to it twice to really, for it to really sink in. Um, but a lot of times the, the disappointment of trying and then having it not work out or just the idea of something, you know, you trying something and having it not work out is enough to dissuade people. And so they don't even allow themselves to want it. Um, I use the dating example because I, I came into this world through date coaching and, you know, I have some stories of clients, but there are lots of times where, you know, especially from a guy, now we have a, a whole culture around, anyway, uh, um, I'll say this, is dating in a city is, you know, it's an intimidating process for lots of people anyway. There's a social norm to a large degree that mostly the men are initiators uh and so that's why i I tend to use this direction talk to the pretty girl uh because that's sort of how it's set up right uh but that whatever fear that you (laughs) whatever fear that you i just had a you know when i was 22 it was awful um lots of fear uh around talking to the girl uh but overcoming that fear is, it, it's not necessarily straightforward. You could reduce it to, you just got to do it. And maybe that's true. But there are lots of guys who don't just do it. And just because you do it, what happens when it doesn't work out? I mean, it's like rejection, right? So this this idea of rejection, whether it's a job or whether you're asking for a loan or God forbid you're one of these people, you have to ask family for money, Um because that is rarely a situation that people want to be in. Uh, but it's that type of overcoming of the fear. And then maybe you have to do it 20 times for it to work. And how do you not lose steam after the first two if you get rejected the first? You know, if someone says yes right off the bat, then okay. But if you ask two girls out or if you go to two different banks asking for loans and they both say no, then, you know, how do you not lose steam? And what is that? Is it, you know, if you get no... Is it the, do you think it hits you in this place psychologically that you feel devalued or you don't have worth? I, I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I mean, because where, where does our worth come from anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a mystery. But there's also a structural component to how we, how we form our worth and how we think of our desires and how we, we live out our lives. And it's structural in, in this way. You know, that the individualism that we started to embody post-enlightenment and then for sure post-capitalism is way harder for people to figure out on their own. And lots of people end up, I mean, most people have to figure it out on their own. Mm -hmm. There are some cultural apparatuses that if you're lucky enough to learn them young or if you're born into a culture that's steeped in, in, that's steeped in, in how to sort of get things out of life in a really successful way then like good for you like you got you drew the right straw but so many of us aren't and we end up having to 
essentially, you know, individually walk this path through life in ways that you have to figure a lot out. Uh, and <laughs> there's all, there are all these competing voices of people who are telling you the right way to do it. And then you don't even know who to listen to. Uh, there's a study that I read earlier this month that says uh, upwards of 40% of all the stuff, all the utterances that come out of, out of our mouths are about self-reporting. The reason that that's, that's interesting is because that's such a high ratio of all of your talking, of all the things that are coming out of your mouth, is that the, the question underneath that that they start to ask is, is self-reporting, is talking about yourself, is it inherently rewarding? Hmm. Uh, and it turns out, you know, I'll skip the details of the study, it turns out that the answer is yes, they peg it to the rewards, two different reward centers in your brain so they can see uh, on an fMRI that people actually like about talking about themselves so much that it gives them pleasure. Hmm. And even more, let's say that you offer someone advice and then they take your advice or it seems like they're going to take your advice then that lights up our reward centers even more. Like we love it when people listen to us. Hmm. So knowing that people love to talk about themselves and not just talk about themselves, but also like to give their advice and give their information, all these types of things that that's inherently rewarding for people, we should be a little bit. So what it means is that everyone is going to give you advice. Hmm. Yeah. You know, if given the choice between like no one, People don't, here's what they don't say, and they should. They say, you know, I don't have enough information on that. And I can't help give you any helpful advice. That's not what people do. People say, well, let me tell you what you should do in this mm -hmm, situation. Mm -hmm. like, you, what do you know about this? Nothing, but still, if I were you. It's like, whoa. But that, that, that's never what happens, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that it means that we need some kind of filtering mechanism to make a distinction between, should I listen to my mom or my dad or my priest or my teacher and like how do you know who to listen to hmm. and most people don't have some filtering mechanism they they go based on trust a trust that's based on some other relationship and in certain ways we know that like don't listen to your doctor about legal advice or don't listen to your lawyer about medical advice like that part we get but should I listen to my best friend about who doesn't have any kids about parenting advice or like your friend who doesn't have a relationship <laughs> about relationship advice? like actually we do this all the time. Mm -hmm. And so what we need is a mechanism to say, Oh, I need a way to find out who I should listen to and in what situations. Um, and that's like a critical skill, right? And if, and when you develop that skill, then it helps you to navigate the, the individual path a little bit better. Like you think about mentors, like mentors who like, oh, I've been exactly in your shoes. They help in that that process. But if you don't have that, and you have to figure it out all yourself, uh, it's tremendously hard. So the the individualism is, is a big part of why I think people suffer in the ways that they mm. do. If you were to think about before the Enlightenment and before individualism and the way that people were embedded in communities. You know, think of some village in France or some village anywhere or even a modern day village. People are embedded in such a way that, you know, if your father was a Mason, you're probably going to be a, a Mason. This is the entire like age of guilds. Um, you, you never had the question growing up on a farm 
about like what should I do today or what do I want to do with my life? Like, <laughs> like you milk the goats. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't have to figure out if I'm a good student or if I'm a good whatever. It's like, oh, if the sun is up, milk the goats. Like that's it. Right. Uh, and, and the expectations are from everywhere. There are religious expectations and there are expectations of most, like mostly what you do around the farm or whatever that kind of life is. But you're embedded in a community. You know, you throw post-enlightenment individualism in and then you throw capitalism in. And then to make it even worse, you throw, let's say, U.S. style suburbanization in. And everybody's running their own race. Um, you, you simply you wake up and you don't know what to do. Now, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have one of these overarching goals in life, like I know what I want to do. Um, my friend Billy always wanted to be a statistician. Like, great. Like, that's amazing if you have that. Uh, but if you don't have that, then you wake up every day and, you know, what do you, what do, you do today? And it's not clear. And that's the part that's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. I think, um, you know, not having to to constantly be assessing your place in life and where you want to go and be. And I, I think you meant, mentioned before, you know, if you're lucky enough or if you figured it out, like through, you know, religion helps in this way, um, you know, probably, you know, something like a kibbutz would help out in something like this or being Amish would help in something like this. Um, but you're right. I think left to our own devices and a big world with, you know, very, you know, limitless possibilities and very little about knowing our own selves. Um, it's tough unless, you know, you know, meditation's good for this kind of stuff. Um, you know, doing deep reflective work, therapy is good for this kind of stuff. But I think, you know, for the most part, we're just really kind of shooting in the dark until we can land on something. But I think that takes a lot of effort and time and research and really understanding that we, you know, we got to go in there and figure out what we want to offer. I, I wanted to ask you about something before we wrapped up. I think you are like designing some kind of course for, for this type of thing, right? Is that true? Yeah, the idea is, so, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to to sort of like to crack a lot of codes as to how this life thing works and, and goal setting. And some of that is like research stuff, too. It turns out that there is, uh, that having a goal has an outsized importance on our lives. And for anyone who's interested in the resources uh, what I'll do is I'll add the names of the authors and books uh, in the like in the metadata to this, so you can just like if you see these names that that's what it's about. Uh, so so having a goal is super important. Uh, I you know I, I talked about my friend Billy. I was super envious of him when he was applying to PhDs. Uh, was he applying to school to to do a PhD program? Uh, and the envy had to do with the fact that he knew so clearly what, what he wanted to do with his life. Like I was super aware that I was aimless, that I was drifting and I didn't have a clear sense of what it was that I was doing. I, there was no goal. I mean, other than traveling, there wasn't a goal that sort of took hold of me. Um, and I, I felt that aimlessness. And, you know, so what I would do is what so many young people do is, 
you fill your time with what tastes good and what feels good and what looks good. like that's all I was doing. Um, it, it wasn't, it was the best that I could do with what I understood. Uh, but it wasn't that great. I mean, yeah, I mean, partying is fine, but it's only fine because it's better than, you know, it's better than not doing or playing video games or whatever it is. It's like a distraction from the, the boringness of your existence. Uh, but once once I was able to have a clear goal, like once it was clear to me like what my purpose was, it changed everything. Mm-hmm. It like my entire life was electrified, you know, the way that I see the world. Um, and so what I've committed to doing is helping people go through this process step by step. It's a nine step process. The roadmap is clear enough that you don't really have to figure everything out. You don't have to read all the books that I read. It's the idea of of helping someone who, you know, you either want two things. You either want like more meaning and more joy and more purpose in your life. Or you want something that is very clearly defined and you're not quite sure how to get. And these two things are connected in a non-obvious way. Um, But the idea is to walk people through that process so that they can get the thing that they, they can live the, the type of life that they want to live mm-hmm. on the other mm-hmm. side. That's really the idea. That sounds pretty great. It sounds exciting. It, I, I tell you what, when, by the time I had finished, I was like, man, I need to take this course. This is, <laughs> good. This is good stuff. Uh, no, I, I think it should, I think it should help people. I think it should be good. It sounds like a great resource. I mean, just even our topic today, I mean, there are people... We need a we need a little guide, <laughs> and you know things are tough. And I think particularly post pandemic, there's been so much uprootedness around profession and job and even identity. So it sounds really timely. You know, we need people are people need to know what what they can do to find a way to have a life that is exciting. And... I tell you what, I have faith. I have faith that we can live in the type of society that we want to live in. Obviously, we got to do some work, but we can get there. So, yeah. Well, um, I think we're we're about wrapping up here. Do you have any last words, last thoughts? Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. <laughs> of course, we're all connected. That's right. All right. Until next time. Peace.